Hi, and welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry Stevens, and I'm your host. In this series, we aim to cover the Eastern Front of the Second World War. This episode, though, is the last introduction before we get to our main content. It's going to cover the Second World War from its beginning to the invasion of the USSR. With that out of the way, let's begin. The Second World War began on September 1, 1939, when German forces invaded Poland. Hitler claimed that he was merely defending an oppressed German minority, but this was a paper-thin excuse for the Third Reich to continue its campaign of conquest. Hitler sought to conquer ever more land for Lebensraum, or living space, believing that this conquest was the only way that the German people could survive. Whether or not Untermenschen, or subhumans, survived was of no concern to him. German forces struck Poland across nearly the whole border. To the north, the third and fourth armies would strike from the German enclave of East Prussia. In the south, Slovakian units would attack in a northeastern direction, but the main force would be concentrated along the western border, where they would push across and move rapidly towards major cities like Warsaw, Lutz, and Krakow. To do so, they had about 1.5 million men, 2,750 tanks, and over 2,000 aircraft. To combat this, the Poles assembled about 1 million men, some 900 armored vehicles, and 800 planes. Polish defensive plans proved a mixture of optimism and misplaced trust, cursed by geography and half-hearted allies. Polish planners had wanted to hold on to as much of the country as possible and spread their troops thinly to defend everything. Unfortunately, Poland did not have the manpower to do this. Worse yet, Western Poland was largely an open landscape without significant natural obstacles, making it highly vulnerable to attack. Some officers had supported the idea of positioning Polish forces behind powerful natural defenses, like the Vistula or San Rivers, but this plan itself had major flaws. It would involve voluntarily surrendering most of western Poland, which held most of the country's population and industrial strengths. Such an action would seriously compromise Poland's capacity to fight a long war. Moreover, Poland's leaders worried that if German forces easily captured these regions, they would be in a position to demand and receive them as part of a negotiated peace agreement. Polish planners had long been aware of these disadvantages and tried to remedy them through alliances with Britain and France. They understood that Poland could not hope to survive a German onslaught alone, but hoped that a solid defense could buy enough time for Britain and France to fully mobilize. From there, it was hoped that German forces would be overwhelmed by British and French might in the west as well as Polish attacks in the east and would eventually crumble under the pressure. This was not a particularly bad plan and might have worked if the British and French had held up their end of the bargain, but it was not to be. France and Britain had only started rearming and mobilizing in strength in the late 1930s, and the military had been neglected due to budget difficulties and political opposition. Even taking all this into account, the extent, or really lack thereof, of Anglo-French aid to Poland as it fought for its very existence is notable. Despite the great majority of German strengths being tied up in Poland, the lone French advance into Germany met with little opposition, and yet French forces were still ordered to return to their starting positions, even before they had located strong German defenses. Meanwhile, Britain's powerful Royal Air Force, or RAF, mainly occupied itself dropping propaganda leaflets over German cities, despite the fact that up to 90% of all German aircraft were occupied in Poland. Standing alone, Poland fell quickly. Outnumbered and outgunned, valiant Polish forces struggled in vain against concentrated German armor, artillery, and airstrikes. German infantry, supported by modern artillery and armored formations, cut through Polish positions, disorienting commanders and creating large encirclements of Polish forces.
In the air, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was numerically, technologically, and doctrinally superior to its Polish enemy. The German plan had called for surprise strikes to destroy the brunt of the Polish Air Force while it was still on the ground, but an astute Polish command had the aircraft distributed to remote air bases, saving it from destruction. Still, against overwhelming opposition, even brave and talented Polish pilots could do little more than pester German fighters and bombers. On September 6th, Krakow was captured, and by the 9th, Warsaw had fallen under attack. On September 10th, remaining Polish forces were ordered to retreat towards the Romanian border, where they could theoretically escape in a dire situation. In subsequent days, the German advance continued almost unabated, as town after town fell to the Germans. Throughout the whole campaign, Germany had been requesting that the USSR fulfill its end of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and invade Poland. Frustrating the Germans, Soviet forces had been in position on the Polish border for weeks, but had not yet launched their attack. Soviet forces were engaged at the same time in a series of border conflicts with Japan and her puppets in the Far East, and Stalin wished to conclude these before entering into a war in Poland. In large part due to the leadership of one Georgi Zhukov, a name you should remember for later, the Soviets won these disputes, and a ceasefire was declared on September 16th. The next day, Soviet forces began their invasion of Poland. Numbering at least 600,000 and equipped with copious amounts of tanks, aircraft, and artillery, Soviet troops quickly swept over the ranks of exhausted and poorly equipped Polish soldiers on the eastern border. Like Hitler, Stalin had his own papers and raising for the invasion, namely, to protect the ethnic Belarusians and Ukrainians in eastern Poland. From here, Polish forces, already fighting a losing battle against a superior German force, were crushed between two totalitarian empires. By September 28th, Soviet and German forces had reached their agreed-upon zones, and only a few besieged Polish enclaves stood. These were destroyed by early October, and October 6th is marked as the end of organized resistance in Poland. While Poland had fallen, Germany remained at war with France and the British Empire, and while the two officially remained committed to the war, the strange quiet of the six months following the German-Soviet conquest of Poland suggested that the Western Allies either would not or could not fight. If Anglo-French inaction during the invasion of Poland was explained by insufficient preparation, then the subsequent quiet in the West during early 1940 grows almost inexcusable. Known as the Phony War, it was marked by a long period of almost complete absence in ground offensives. Although a few notable actions occurred to sea, little territory changed hands and a few shots were fired in the West. Rather, it would be in the East where borders would shift. With the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the USSR now had a free hand within its sphere of influence. It very quickly demanded the right to station troops and ships in the Baltic states, that is, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, as well as Finland. The Baltics had reluctantly agreed, knowing that refusal would invite invasion, but Finland had refused. Negotiations between Soviet and Finnish delegates came to nothing. Soviet diplomats insisted that Finland either cede or lease important territory, which would bring Soviet troops to within 20 miles of major Finnish cities, past the Mannerheim Line, Finland's strongest defenses. On November 26th, a Soviet border post was reportedly shelled. Supposedly, this killed four and wounded nine. The Soviets blamed the Finns for this. In reality, we know with almost total certainty that this was a false flag attack by Soviet forces. Records show that there were no Finnish artillery units in the region at the time. Despite this, the USSR blamed Finland and demanded Finnish forces retreat from the border. Finland refused, and relations were suspended on the 28th. On November 30th, war was declared. Although the Soviets vastly outnumbered the Finns in men and equipment, they attacked in a clumsy manner, unprepared for the brutal Finnish winter and led by incompetent officers.
Due to this, Soviet losses were incredibly severe, and attacks made almost no progress, as masses of Soviet soldiers charged fortified Finnish positions and were gunned down in the hundreds or froze to death. The harsh weather grounded planes and tanks broke down. The Finns, without many anti-tank weapons of their own, used improvised lit bottles of gasoline to light Soviet vehicles on fire. These were dubbed Molotov cocktails. The name came from a report that Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov gave that Soviet bombings of Finland were actually airdrops of packages of food. I suppose the Finns decided to return the favor. By February of 1940, Soviet command had been altered and tactics adjusted. Although losses were still severe, frequent Soviet attacks finally began to make progress, and within a few weeks, the Finnish defense was on the verge of collapse. Brought to the negotiating table, the Finns are forced to concede more than had been demanded pre-war. Although, it is worth noting that many argue that the end goal of Soviet demands to Finland was the annexation of the entire country into the USSR, something that did happen to the Baltic states. Those same people argue that Finland's fighting saved them that fate. Although the Winter War, as it would come to be known, was an eventual Soviet victory, it also proved a humiliating affair. Soviet forces regularly took four to five times the losses of their Finnish counterparts, and officers proved incompetent at leading men or handling advanced equipment. Largely due to overconfidence and the disastrous results of Stalin's purges, the world, and particularly Germany, took note that the Soviet Union was not the titan it might appear to be. Things remained calm in Western Europe until April 1940, when Germany invaded and occupied Denmark and Norway. These unexpected invasions were motivated by Germany's fears that the Royal Navy would cut Germany off from the vital Swedish iron ore. These were rapid successes, taking Denmark in a matter of hours and forcing Allied troops to abandon Norway by June. Before that, on May 10th, German forces launched the first blow of what they hoped would end the war. For that, they had to knock France out of the conflict. Germany could attack France from only two angles. Germany had a direct border with France, but this was covered by the Maginot Line. Constructed in 1930, the Maginot Line was a massive and powerful series of fortifications. Situated on rocky and difficult terrain, the Maginot Line presented a powerful obstacle that was nearly impenetrable to break via frontal assault. This left only one real option. France's border was the Low Countries. Those are Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. And this was something that the French saw coming. In fact, it was the entire point of the Maginot Line. The idea was to force the German invasion into a narrow corridor where French, Belgian, Dutch, and British troops could combat them more easily. Better still, at least for the French, such war would not be fought on French soil. Panzer divisions would now be located behind the brunt of Allied forces, and they could advance rapidly, perhaps even reaching the English Channel. In that case, the strongest Allied units would be encircled and easily defeated in Belgium. From there, weaker Allied forces in the south of France could be handled without much difficulty. According to its advocates, Manstein's plan could win the war for Germany within six weeks. Against the opposition of more traditional officers, Manstein's ideas were added to the official German plans on February 24th. On the Allied side, plans were less innovative. To understand some of the reasoning, particularly on the French side, we have to talk about some of the overarching concepts in warfare, which we'll come back to frequently in future episodes. There are typically three levels to military planning. The lowest level is tactical. Tactical concerns itself with comparatively short-range concerns, maybe capturing a village or a hill. On the other end is strategy. Strategy refers to the overall conduct of the war and those operations that are strategic or those that deny the enemy the ability to make war. 
This can mean capturing enemy territory, inflicting so many casualties on the enemy that they can now support a large army, or destroying and or seizing vital economic assets. Binding the tactical and the strategic together is the operational. The operational focuses on parlaying tactical successes into strategic goals. For instance, let's say in a war, the enemy will surrender if their capital city is taken. Knowing this, we can say that the capture of the enemy capital is a strategic goal, because taking it will prevent the enemy from waging war. To capture it, though, we first need to break through enemy forces. These smaller initial battles will be tactical, while the wider battles and campaigns based on winning those smaller engagements will be operational. A concept particularly important in France is strategic depth. Strategic depth refers to the distance between the front lines of the war and the vital resources that allow you to make war. A country with a high level of strategic depth can afford to lose land, and some nations have even used their strategic depth as part of a military strategy. But a country with little to no strategic depth cannot afford to lose too much land, or else they also lose their ability to make war. France found itself in the latter position. While France is not a small country, the brunt of French industry and resources were located in the north, so losing these positions would render France incapable of large-scale war. So, German forces are only left with a single option to attack France, to go through the Low Countries. Fortunately for them, the Low Countries are flat and have good infrastructure, good for invasion. Unfortunately for them, the Low Countries are also littered with waterways and canals that can slow down an army, bad for invasion. Not to mention, German forces are doing exactly what the French believed they would do. So if they had any chance of success, they would need a daring plan. Early German plans for an invasion of France proved disappointing, and certainly not daring. They tended to bear a disconcerting similarity to the Schleifen plan, the ambitious offensive against France that Germany had attempted and failed during the First World War, which bogged down and led to four years of trench warfare. Fallgelb, Case Yellow, called for an infantry-led offensive through Belgium and into France with the immediate goal of forcing British and French forces behind the Somme River line with frontal attacks. Projected losses for this would be 500,000 men, and it would take up until 1941 or 1942 to finish off French and British forces and bring them to the table. Hitler disagreed with his plan, and he was far from the only one. Some of the more innovative officers decided to see if they could do better, and one Erich von Manstein certainly had an innovative idea. Located in Belgium, Luxembourg, France, and Germany are the Ardennes. The region is filled with thick forests, steep hills, and other difficult terrain. French commanders had deemed it wholly unsuitable for an attack, particularly an armored one. Pre-war simulations had confirmed that the Ardennes would likely not be targeted and that priority should be given elsewhere. The Ardennes featured heavily in Manstein's plans. He argued that the brunt of the invasion, particularly its tanks, should be centered around the Ardennes, specifically around the city of Sedan. It was hoped that a panzer attack in this area would meet with little resistance and achieve a major breakthrough. If this happened, to provide more strategic depth, France wanted to take up positions in Belgium. Belgium, not excited about the prospect of another war on its soil and hoping to avoid provoking Germany by remaining neutral, provided very little cooperation or coordination with French forces. All the same, French plans called for the left flank of the French defense to advance into Belgium as soon as Germany attacked. It was hoped that French forces could move fast enough to reach the Belgian-German border before it was breached, but the German forces had already broken through, there were several rivers that formed plausible lines of defense within Belgium. The Belgians, fearing a German invasion, built up their defenses in the last years of the 1930s, and this increased strength convinced French commanders that rather than planning to assume positions along the Escalt River, they would likely have time to move up to the Dial River. A modified version of this plan, Plan D, D for Dial, 
hoped to push German forces out of parts of the Netherlands to establish an even better defense. What all these plans share is a high level of focus on the Low Countries and Northern France and neglect for the Ardennes. And while more than a few armchair historians look back on this and scoff, we have to look at it without hindsight. Up to this point, almost all evidence had pointed to the Ardennes being impassable for a large force, and even many German officers believed that there was no way such a large force could be supported in such inhospitable terrain. Feeling confident, the French forces assigned to guard the Ardennes would be reservists. Typically, older men without as fresh training meant to cover sectors unlikely to come under heavy fire. We'll look at balance of forces, then we'll see what actually happened in the Battle of France. German forces were broken up into three army groups, A, B, and C. A was outfitted with 45 and a half divisions, including 7 of 10 panzer, or tank, divisions. Army Group A would be tasked with the raison d'etre of the campaign, breaking through the Ardennes. Army Group B was smaller, with only 29 and a half divisions, three of them panzer divisions, and was supposed to strike into the Low Countries, where they would engage the main strengths of the French forces. Finally, Army Group C had just 18 divisions, but all I had to do was hold the eastern flank of the German forces. An additional 42 German divisions would be held in reserve for later deployment. Aiding the German forces, in theory, were about 300,000 Italian troops that were on a group west. They would attack over the mountainous Franco-Italian border, as well as attack French and British colonies in North and East Africa. This would mark Italy's official entrance into the war. All in all, Axis forces numbered some 3.6 million, with over 10,000 artillery pieces, 2,500 tanks, and 5,600 aircraft, though that last number includes both combat and non-combat aircraft. Facing them were the armies of Belgium, France, the Netherlands, and the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF. The French forces were split into three groups. The first army group called on nearly 40 divisions, including most of France's motorized and armored forces, and would be tasked with opposing a German advance into the Low Countries. Army Group 2 numbered about 30 divisions, and was to hold the Maginot Line. Army Group 3 would hold the remainder of the Maginot and had 10 divisions. A small French force of 35,000 men held the Italian border. Just to note that the exact division count of each of these three army groups may not be perfectly accurate, but what you need to take away is that the French focused their best trained and most powerful forces in the north, and weaker divisions were to hold elsewhere, including along the Ardennes and Maginot Line. The Belgian army was arranged in the 22 divisions, amounting to 600,000 men. They planned to hold the German forces along a line from Antwerp to Namur until British and French forces had reached prearranged defensive lines, where they would attempt to hold against German attacks. 240,000 Dutch forces were arranged into 10 divisions. The exact arrangement of these divisions is difficult to explain, if only because the Dutch rely as much on water as men for defense. Additionally, given the, spoilers, incredibly short Dutch campaign, it's almost not worth mentioning. And of course, I say that with all due respect to the defenders of the Netherlands. If you're interested in it, look up the Battle of the Netherlands. Finally, the BEF. By May 10, 1940, 12 British divisions were in France, though it was joined by a threadbare armor division after fighting began. The BEF was integrated into the French plans to advance into Belgium, so we won't go too much into their exact location in here. All in all, the Allies could summon at least 3.5 million men, 14,000 artillery pieces, 2,900 planes, and about 3,500 tanks. That is all to say, in most regards, Allied forces held parity with the Germans in manpower and other factors, and numerical superiority in places like artillery and armor. Admittedly, some German equipment, like tanks and planes, 
or somewhat superior to their Allied counterparts. But still, a German victory against the Western Coalition would have to be a victory of planning as opposed to overwhelming numbers. On 9 p.m. May 9th, the code word Danzig was sent out to German divisions. This signaled the beginning of the invasion. Luxembourg was taken with nearly no opposition, and German airstrikes quickly established air superiority for the Luftwaffe, destroying half of Dutch and Belgian aircraft in the first day. German attacks pushed into the Netherlands, piercing the strongest line of Dutch defense by May 12th. The Dutch situation became more and more hopeless, although Dutch troops continued to resist bravely. German planners began to grow frustrated and worried that continuing Dutch resistance would bog down further actions. To force Dutch surrender, German commanders threatened to carpet bomb the city of Utrecht. Hoping to save their country from more damage, Dutch commanders agreed to surrender, and most resistance ceased on May 14th. In Belgium, daring German paratroopers were able to capture several major fortresses in a series of airborne raids. Shocked, Belgian forces withdrew to the Dial Line early. Successive German attacks managed to push back Allied forces in Belgium, but the strength of Allied forces in the area and the relative weakness of Army Group B, which had been weakened to support Army Group A, meant that Allied defenses remained relatively strong. Army Group A's advance in the Ardennes region was held up by the poor roads in the area. Army Group A had 41,000 vehicles, but only four routes to travel through. This created massive logistical problems, including possibly the largest traffic jam of all time, which spanned a colossal 250 kilometers, or about 155 miles. This immense concentration of forces, to say nothing of trucks and tanks, was noticed by Allied reconnaissance, but not given an appropriate response due to difficulties in transportation, German air superiority, and a belief that an offensive through yard ends could be easily countered. Once German forces cleared the jam, they managed to execute several river crossings. In all honesty, I'm having to seriously summarize this, and the Battle of France is worthy of its own podcast, but just broad strokes. German and French forces in the area came to a decisive battle at Sedan, where German forces seriously outnumbered the French in terms of men, aircraft, and tanks. A German victory here on May 15th created an open path for Army Group A's Panther divisions to race through. And race through they did. Facing little resistance, German units conducted a breakneck advance, getting within sight of the English Channel by the 20th. Effectively, all remaining Allied forces in Belgium were trapped in a massive pocket. At this point, German success was not yet a guarantee. While German forces had established a pocket of Allied troops, the German line in the south was sparse and could potentially be broken by a concerted Allied attack. Unfortunately, changes in command, poor communications, defeatism, and even car accidents stymied any attempts at organizing a real counteroffensive. Eventually, the opportunity had passed, and the pocket was sealed. As a side note, Italy declared war on Britain and France on June 10th, but their undersupplied forces had little success against French defenders in the Alps. However, June 10th does mark the beginning of fighting in Africa. Judging the situation as hopeless, the British government organized an evacuation of Allied forces from the coastal city of Dunkirk. Over about a week, 340,000 soldiers were able to be evacuated, but 200,000 more were rescued later. South of the pocket, German forces began a relentless and breathtaking advance. They quickly overrun outgunned and outnumbered French forces occupying Paris on June 14th. French Prime Minister Renaud resigned on June 16th, and Philippe Pétain, Renaud's successor, announced his intention to seek an armistice. Poignantly, Hitler insisted on having the armistice signed in a rail car at Compagnie Forest. The same rail car and the same spot where the 1918 armistice was signed that had ended the First World War. The terms were harsh. 60% of France would be occupied by German forces, the rest would be governed by a German puppet state. 
All French POWs would remain imprisoned until the war was concluded, and the French army would be reduced to a fragment of its former size. The French navy would be disarmed. All this and more, and France would have to pay for it all. With the German delegates making it clear the terms were not up for debate, the French delegation gave in and signed on June 22nd. It came into effect on the 25th, marking the end of the Battle of France. Germany now stood alone on the continent. With that, we're going to wrap this up for today. This account of the war from its beginnings to Operation Barbarossa was actually much longer than I would have thought, and it ended up being about two episodes worth. Thankfully, I already wrote both. So, when you're hearing this, the second part will have either already been released or will be out within a day or so. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Until then, my name is Harry Stevens, and I'll see you soon.